Take your Bibles and look at Luke chapter 6, the sixth chapter of Luke's gospel, and we continue to make our way through the unfolding ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when, uh, when believers think of Jesus at times, or, or even as pastors sometimes present Him, the, the assumption can be that He is always nice, that Jesus is always um, sort of this soft kind of persona that that uh, always spoke in whispered tones and, and never really uh, would provoke any kind of conflict with others. And that, of course, ignores what we already know if you've read the Gospels at all, because right out of the gate in Jesus' ministry, John 2 records the fact that he went into the Temple Mount and out of zeal for the worship of his Father, he made a whip and began to remove the the racketeering and the business trade that had taken place uh, heartlessly and shamelessly on the Temple Mount as people were pretending to worship. And so he went in and cleaned it up, and by doing so, he instigated a major unfolding divide between who he was and what he was teaching and that which the religious leaders had already done so for many, many decades So the question asked quite often is, uh, wasn't Jesus always this um, sort of kind-hearted, gentle person? Well, he was perfect. He never sinned. So he was always kind for the right reasons and always gentle to the right group of people. In fact, if you think about how he was characteristically uh, engaging with the crowds around him, he was open and merciful and patient and even tenderly instructive with a certain kind of person in the culture. It was always someone whose life had been shattered by guilt and sin. In other words, they came uh, or Jesus encountered them broken and shattered by the out-of-control heart of sin that had led them down the path of the way they lived their life. He always spoke openly and mercifully and patiently with those kind of people. Others who were in bondage to evil influences, the demoniacs, he had compassion on those people because their life of sin had led them to such devastating uh, bondage under evil influences. He spoke openly and mercifully to outcasts. He was gentle and instructive in a tender way to the ignorant and genuinely interested. Uh, Religious or not, you could have had religion or, or grown up with none of it in a pagan culture, but if you were... Genuinely interested, even though you were ignorant of the truth, he was open. He was open to people who were afflicted with the consequences of life's sin. He was open to the penitent and broken, people looking for answers. He was even open to those outside of Israel, uh, such as you know officials in the Roman army, the centurions, etc., who were lost in their pagan culture. But to those whom he was characteristically closed, you can always put him in the cross-section of a certain kind of person. He was characteristically merciless and harsh and severely reproving of religious hypocrites and the self-righteous. By the time we begin to see this pattern unfolding in narratives in Luke's gospel, the elite religious leaders of Jesus' day were already well down the road of wanting Jesus exterminated. He had already provoked the argument. He'd already confronted their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. And prior to where Luke takes us in chapter 6... Jesus has already done the countless miracles of mercy. He's already preached sermon after sermon of repentance and forgiveness to the masses. He reached out to them in kindness and and forgiveness. He was compassionate to the worst of sinners who would come and follow him. But by now, he's also had outbursts of righteous anger, one particularly on the Temple Mount and another to come, He's deliberately provoking the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
Every time they bring a suspicious question to him, he answers it in a way that purposely exposes their ignorance of the scriptures and their disregard for anyone but themselves. And furthermore, Jesus continues to provoke them by accepting veneration and honor and homage from people as though he were some sort of prophet of the ages or the Messiah. In Luke 5, verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees reasoned amongst themselves and said, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus was in that situation going to do something that poked them in the religious eye. Verse 30 of chapter 5, they questioned his personal purity. Notice, they began grumbling, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? He had a meal with his personal friend, this newly converted outcast, and a whole bunch of his delinquent friends were invited. And last time we saw that Jesus was charged with unrighteousness. Verse 33, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, but your disciples are having a party. You're not following the twice-a-week fast. So if you imagine that Jesus always handled people with the, the comfort and the mercy and the compassion with which he handles the broken sinner. Think again, you've not read the Gospels carefully enough. Jesus provokes a conflict at almost every turn with those that are self-righteous and live in hypocrisy. They say they want to honor God, but their heart is far from him. To those who saw their utter spiritual dehydration. He was the, the water to quench their thirst. He was the spring in the desert of their life. But for those who lived by outward pretense, not at all. To those who thought they were spiritually elite, who heartlessly and mercilessly ignored the true spiritual needs of those around them, those they claimed to lead, those they said they were guides to, those they said they spiritually cared for, to those people whom they heartlessly and mercilessly ignored. Jesus deliberately became a light that the Pharisees wanted snuffed out and immediately because he exposed them. Why? Because Jesus was always concerned about the heart he was always exposing the fact that the spiritual leaders of Israel would put their people under these heavy burdens and the weight of all of their nitpicking additions to the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Look back for a moment with your finger in Luke 6 before we get in the text. Look at Matthew 15. Look at this little interchange that takes place. It's absolutely riveting. Matthew 15. Verse 1, some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. I mean, they're just looking for every little thing. And what does Jesus answer them? Verse 3, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You say, well, what do you mean? They were... They were obeying the, the, the laws. They were trying to work out the Old Testament law. What are you saying, Jesus? Verse 4. Jesus says that God had said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Hey, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He's not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The Old Testament law taught that you take care of your parents. And in the pretense of worship, they took all those resources and kept it for themselves and acted like they were offering it to God. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. But you, for the sake of your tradition of worship, all the added regulations, you take the, the korban, the amount of money that you're supposed to take care of your parents and you offer it to God in worship and violate that very law? What hypocrites? Verse 7. 
You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. What is he talking about? He's talking about their question. Oh, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat bread. Oh, so they're taking in something unclean. Jesus says, look, it's not a piece of bread when your hand isn't washed that somehow defiles you. It's what's already in your heart that you're not facing. And it comes out of your mouth because you say in pretense, Oh, I worship you, oh God. But inside here, you have no interest in really facing God and His Word with your heart. Wow. Verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to Him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Oh, well. With your pen right in there, duh. Duh. Verse 13, he answered them and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both fall into a pit. This is a problem that went back generations. And Isaiah had spoken rightly of the people of Israel generations before them. Isaiah 29, 13, he quotes it. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Man, he has to judge them. Now, God had established some ceremonial law. Of course, what was the ceremonial law for in the Old Testament? It was for the worship of God's people and to consecrate them. It pointed to the spiritual realities of their need to be clean and their worship of God needed to be pure. And then there were civil laws in Israel and those were created so that Israel would know how to act socially as separate from the pagan nations around them. That is to say, pagan God worship and, and all of the, the wild living that went on in those cultures. The, the civil laws of Israel were for their social well-being and to separate them from those nations. It always pointed to God who's a God of order. It always pointed to God who's a God of, of good communities and strong families and strong social order. And so Israel was to keep the ceremonial and civil laws because it pointed to all that God wanted to speak about spiritually. Furthermore, the laws were clear in the Old Testament and they marked Israel out as a people loved by God. But the laws were always intended to force the issue of the heart. The laws of God, even in Israel, were intended to force the issues of the heart. First of all, they represented God's holiness... Right? The laws were about the moral holiness of God. All of them represented that God is separate, He's other than us, He's morally holy, He's pure, and in order to be in His presence, you must come to Him His way. That's what the law did. It represented God's righteous standard and His separateness from God's people. And, as the people had to keep those laws on the outside, it was a demonstration, or supposed to be a demonstration, of what was going on on the inside. So if you went to the law of God, like the psalmist, Psalm 119.97, and you said, oh, how I love thy law, then it should show up in your heart attitude. If you really loved God's law, you wouldn't just care about the externals. Just like today, if you really care about Christ, you don't just say you care about Christ and, uh, and go to somebody and pay a little money or give to the church or, or do a little external work while you disobey a heart for Christ. On the inside. That wasn't the purpose. The Old Testament law was no different. God established those laws so that as you obeyed them on the outside, it was a demonstration of your care and your love and your worship of God on the inside. Furthermore, they couldn't keep the law. So God gave them those laws knowing they couldn't keep them. Why did He do that? Because as you tried to obey them and did not keep them perfectly, you would always know to be humble before God, Lord, I can't keep your law. You would always know to be contrite, confessing your inability to keep it. Not only can I not keep it, Lord, but here are the ways I haven't kept it, and I seek your forgiveness for those. Furthermore, as you couldn't keep it, it would make you dependent on Yahweh. You would always come to Him and say, please, 
Please, God, give me a way in your mercy to actually obey because my heart is feeling guilty. And lastly, when you couldn't obey it, you became broken over your own sin and you would come to God every day for renewed kindness and mercy. That's why he gave a law you could never obey. It was his holiness. You could never obey it. It was to make you humble, contrite, dependent, broken, and coming to him every day for renewed grace. It also spoke of the seriousness of sin and its consequences. When you, tr- when you saw the law, it was to teach you the seriousness of obeying it so that you're serious about the dangers of sin and serious about the holiness and purity of God. Where God's people are not taught what God says in His Word, their view of sin gets dumbed down, their view of God's holiness gets dumbed down, and they don't see sin for what it really is. It'll destroy a soul. So what the law did was expose the heart. It was an issue of where your affections lied. Did you love Jesus Christ? Did you love Yahweh? Did you love God? Was He your highest affection? Did you love His law because it always reflected His holiness? And that's what you longed to be under, was the care of God and the purity of God. That was it. Or, like the Pharisees and like Israel of old, did you despise God's law because your heart was all about you? And so you had to figure out a way to sort of look righteous on the outside, but on the inside you didn't care. By the time Jesus faces off with the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership of Israel had turned many of the Old Testament laws into something that could be performed on the outside much easier than dealing with the heart issue on the inside. That was the issue. How did they do that? Well, they created 613 extra added sort of regulations for the carrying out of God's Old Testament law. There were 365 negative commands and 248 positive commands. And those were added as regulations for how to carry out Old Testament law. Why were they creating more struggle? Here's why. They, they created those laws not so they could more genuinely from the heart worship God, but so that they could use those extra regulations to appear righteous on the outside without actually dealing with the heart on the inside. Look at chapter 11 of Luke, verse 46, very quickly. The text before us in chapter 6 is going to unfold just wonderfully if I can give this background. Luke 11, verse 46 But he said, this is Jesus, Woe to you lawyers. He's talking about the theological lawyers of Israel. Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You remember I read that in Matthew's Gospel, the parallel text. Man, you weigh people down with these negative and positive regulations, but you won't even actually do the the law itself. In Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? Because every day you come, and as the law says, you bring all your herbs as your tithe for the nation of Israel. So you bring mint, and you bring cumin, and you bring dill, and you faithfully do that, but you ignore the weightier provisions of the law. What are those things? Mercy, and justice, and compassion. There were all kinds of people who needed herbs. All kinds of people who needed food. And you go to the temple and you tithe your food according to the law. And you walk right by these people. You don't care about them. You don't love them. You think you're above them. For you, it's all about how much better you are than them. You're heartless. You're cold. And you're arrogant. In chapter 6, watch how this unfolds. Jesus provokes them. He provokes two debates here. And both times, the issue 
in verses 1 to 11, both times the issue he's going after is the Old Testament law that the Jewish leaders had twisted into the biggest sacred cow of their entire system. It was the issue of keeping the Sabbath. Follow along as I read chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened that while he was that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. (laughs) Now you know Jesus does this deliberately. Sure, they're hungry. Yes, they need some food. They've been traveling. Maybe their suppliers, the ladies that would follow them around and give them food, weren't around in this particular part of the day. And so on a Sabbath, they're passing through a grain field. Now notice, his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. Some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which isn't lawful for anyone to eat except the priests alone, and he gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath, Luke just sort of starts stringing these narratives together. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees, look at this, were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might see his healing and know he's the Messiah and believe in him. <laughs> Wrong translation. <laughs> Look at this. They want to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Get in the front of this room, center, right in front of me. Come here. And he got up and he came forward. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, he said to them, he's looking around the crowd, he's got the man in front of him. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it? And they're not answering. And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to destroy Jesus. So Jesus is provocative. He is inciting a conflict because he is trying to deal with the heart. These are the religious leaders. These are the people, these are the men that are respected among the people who should be God's people, who should believe in their Messiah. And these leaders are leading people astray because they're acting righteous and they're holding people to all these regulations, but they're missing the heart of the whole issue because they're ignoring it. And as I said, by this time, Jesus had already provoked this. John 5 records a healing on a Sabbath that took place before Luke's recording of what goes on here in chapter 6. So in John 5, if you ever want to go back and read it, verse 1 to 47, you you have the pool there, and you have five porticos around the pool. It's on the northeastern uh, gate of Jerusalem. Jesus heals the man who's been sick for 38 years. And he does it on a Sabbath. And the Pharisees question him about it. How can you do this on the Sabbath? And you know what Jesus said? I was working during that healing. And my father was working during that healing. Now they got really upset. Because not only was he healing on the Sabbath. But he was making himself equal with God. So he'd already provoked them about this. Now you say, well, Pastor, what what is this Sabbath issue? Let me summarize it for you. I'll make it simple. Boiling down the the purpose of the Sabbath, which is given, by the way, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, the Sabbath day was a rest from your labors, and it was commanded by God so that Israel would have a weekly time set aside for some very important things. They had a weekly time set aside every week for corporate worship that was undistracted by the strain of weekly commerce and the routines of economic survival. As a nation, they had to live just like we do. And so they had a day set aside for corporate worship undistracted by the strain of that weekly cycle of commerce and marketplace. Secondly, it was a weekly reminder, therefore, of how God had rested after creating the heavens of the earth. What was it a reminder of in in God resting? Well, when God rested, he was satisfied with his work. So he's telling the people of God, I want you to be satisfied with your work. When you rest from it, you're actually saying, okay, 
I, I, I'm setting myself in a moment of satisfaction for what has taken place. In Genesis 1.31, God rested from all he had done, all his work that he had done, and he saw that it was very good. So he was satisfied with his work, and he enjoyed the fruit of his labor. He sat back and enjoyed it. And God wanted his people to sit back like he had done at creation and enjoy the fruit of their labor. And that he set this day aside to remind Israel to do the same. I'm setting it aside. You keep it holy because I want you to be satisfied with six days of work. I want you to enjoy the fruit of your labor and I want you to have undistracted corporate worship. And the final purpose of it ultimately was to point to a spiritual need. What was the spiritual need? Spiritual rest from sin. The Sabbath was a reminder to Israel that there is coming a day when a Messiah would come and He would give us rest from our anguish over this constant battle for a clean heart, a clear conscience. You know why we don't do the Sabbath today? Because Hebrews chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, leading into the first 11 verses of chapter 4, teach us that when Jesus Christ came, we entered the ultimate Sabbath rest. Our sins are forgiven in the person of Christ. The Old Testament saints longed for that day when there would be the payment for their sin. So they were forgiven by faith in anticipation of a Sabbath rest to come in Christ. We look back at the Sabbath rest accomplished in Christ and we are in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews warns the people, do not be like Israel who didn't enter his rest because of unbelief. But we, because of faith in Christ alone, are entered into that Sabbath rest. So Jesus Christ is already here. He's already living within us. We have rest from the guilt of our sin. That's why we don't celebrate it. And by the way, if you ever, somebody ever says, no, we need to celebrate it, you need to just take them to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, says that no one now in the new covenant should ever hold you to some Sabbath regulation. You can celebrate it if you want. You can, you can rest on Saturday if you want. That's fine. But it's not more spiritual to do it. And it's not less spiritual not to do it. Uh, whatever festival you want to celebrate. You know, people say all the time, Oh, you know, we shouldn't be celebrating Christmas. Really? I mean, the Bible says you can be convinced in your own mind about whatever festival you want to celebrate. Others will say, Oh, you know, people shouldn't go back and celebrate the Passover. Why not? People can celebrate the Passover if they want. It's, it's not more spiritual to do it. It's not less spiritual not to do it. As Colossians clearly points out. So God wanted Israel to cease from the routines of life and commerce and enjoy the fruit of the previous six days. What he never intended, what God never intended on that day was that they would stop doing work and also turn their heart off from the real weighty issues of character and cleanliness and service and love and purity and grace and compassion. Oh no. He never intended for keeping the Sabbath to turn into a puffing up self-righteous, I'm more spiritual than you because I do this and you don't. People do that all the time about silly little things, don't they? They, they turn, you know particular versions of the Bible into something super spiritual above everything else. It's just not true. It's arrogance. It's pride. The Bible says never to do that. Pharisees did this kind of thing all the time, particularly with the Sabbath. And they turned it into four very disgusting things. And I just have to give these to you. This is where they went wrong, beloved. They turned the Sabbath keeping into four very devastating things. First of all, they used it, as I said, to appear more righteous. They used it to appear more righteous. Secondly, they used it as, as an excuse not to serve others. Oh, Sabbath. Can't serve you. Oh, you have a need? <laughs> Sabbath. Sorry. Three, they used it as an opportunity to accuse others. Oh, you're not as holy as I am. 
So they used it to appear to themselves and others as righteous, and they used it as an excuse not to serve others from the heart with true love and compassion, and they used it as an opportunity to accuse others of being unholy, just like they're doing right here with the disciples. And lastly and worst of all, they used it to earn God's favor. They thought they would make themselves acceptable to God by keeping their little regulations. Now, the text is going to unfold very quickly. Notice what happens. They're passing through the grain field on a Sabbath. His disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. There's, there's a major problem right there. Because in the law, you, weren't, you could walk through a neighbor's field and, and grab a piece of grain, but you couldn't take out a, a, a sickle or a winnowing fork and start working for some food on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are watching the disciples grab the grain and do this. And they're saying, ah, see, you're working. You're sickling. You're, you're winnowing. What they would do is sift it and get the grain and let the chaff blow away and they would eat it. They needed some food. It was lawful to go through a field of your neighbor and pick a head of grain if you had serious need uh, for food and sustenance in the heat of the day in an arid culture, arid climate. But, but to do this, all oh, the Pharisees are on top of that. Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus, uh, he says, well, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? I mean, have you not read in 1 Samuel 21 what David did when he was hungry? You can read it, 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 6. David and his men were fleeing from Saul, and, uh, and they come near Jerusalem, and they knew that it was the Sabbath. So guess what happens on the Sabbath? A new, fresh, uh, several loaves of bread, 12 loaves of bread that sit on the golden table, they were brought out. So what happens to the old bread? It's still consecrated, it's still holy, and it can only be eaten by the priest. But David and his men are hungry and fleeing from Saul and his wicked intent. And so what happens? David goes in to the priest, and he says to him, like, hey, uh, can we have the bread that's the older bread? We know it's consecrated. And what was he asked? Are you and your men consecrated? What is he asking? Have you been separated unto God? Are you living for Him? Is your heart pure? Or are you under the judgment or chastening of God? And what was David's answer? My friends and I are consecrated. Our heart is right before God. And he was given the bread and he ate it. He wasn't the priest. It was the Sabbath. He was given the consecrated bread, and they ate. And Jesus is saying, haven't you ever read that when David came to Jerusalem, that in King David's case, it was need over ceremony? Don't you get it? You guys are jacking up the ceremony and all the meticulous regulations, and you're missing the issue. David's men had a need. God always deals with the need and the spirit of what he wrote, rather than your little meticulous way of making yourself self-righteous. That's the point. You see, the Pharisees had turned the Sabbath into a day of enjoying the fruit of a week of labor, but they'd they'd then turned it into this burdensome lifestyle So on the outside, they looked like they were not working and they were pretending to worship for the fruit of their labors, as God had said, but then they heaped a bunch of burdens on other people and their own little meticulous way of operating them so they would appear more righteous, so they would excuse themselves from having to serve people's needs and take care of others because that would mean self-sacrifice. And they used it as an opportunity to accuse others who they claimed were less righteous, particularly accusing Jesus because they wanted to take him down. Man, they just totally misused it. And so Jesus says, David entered the house of God, took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except a priest alone. And he gave it to his companions. Look, God is concerned with the heart. He's concerned with need and mercy for those needs over substance. You guys have turned this into an excuse not to meet needs. Not to have mercy. Not to have compassion. 
In Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 27, the parallel text, in this account, what Jesus said to them, he added some things. Mark records that he said, look, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath, Sabbath was made for man to enjoy the fruit of life in the favor of God and to spread that favor of, from God to other men. Selflessly, sacrificially, lovingly. But you have made man for the Sabbath. You've turned the Sabbath and added a bunch, turned it into some, something where you've added a bunch of regulations and you have bound men to it. You do it deceitfully. They're all heavily weighed down with burdens, but you do it because you pretend worship, but your heart is far from me. In the parallel text in Matthew's Gospel, there's something else Jesus actually said as well. Matthew 12, verse 7, he says to the Pharisees in this occasion, if you had known what Hosea 6, 6 means when Hosea said, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the innocent. You are condemning innocent disciples of mine. You are condemning an innocent leader of my disciples. You're condemning me. We're all innocent. And you guys are the guilty ones. Why? Because Hosea, your own prophet, had said that God desires compassion rather than the meticulous little letter of the law. Yes, he wants you to keep it. But form over the heart was never the intention. The law was to transform the heart. The law was to soften it, to take you to God, to cause you to think like David and his men. Lord, are we clean before you? Are our hearts pure? That's what God's truth is intended to do. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, you remember what happened with Saul God had said, wipe out the wicked nation, the Amalekites. Wipe them out. They are an evil nation. They're evil through and through. They're an evil culture. I want you to take them down from king all the way down to the bottom. I want them all wiped off the face of the planet. They are an offense to me. They don't believe me. They reject me. They are a wicked nation. And I'm going to use my people, Israel, to take them down. Saul, get it done. And Saul went and he wiped out the nation except for the king and a few spoils. And what did, he, what did he say to Samuel in 1 Samuel 15 when Samuel said, you've come. And he said, oh yeah, and I've obeyed the Lord. Took care of business. And Samuel says, and why am I hearing some sheep bleating in my ears, making noise? If you'd wiped them out, I'd hear nothing but maybe some smoldering embers. I'd not hear a voice of the enemy. I'd not hear an animal of the enemy because you were told to wipe out all their animals and their livestock. Get rid of them, all of them. Burn it all, including the treasure and the spoils. Why am I hearing sheep, Saul? You know what he said? Well, I brought those to worship. I brought those to worship. Samuel said to him, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You come to me with your pretend worship and you do the externals. And maybe you're a moralist. Maybe you think that you're better than other people by the little externals that you do. Or maybe you're a legalist. Maybe you actually are here today and you don't know the Lord. You're trying to work your way to heaven. You come to church. Hey, church attendance, I got that marked down. My prayers, I do some systematic prayers. I have a study Bible. I read that. And uh, I give. And uh, I don't go to places where sinners collect. And um, I make sure I give to charities and this and that. I do social programs. Look, God does not delight in any of those things, if in here, your heart is far from Him. If it's all about your self-righteousness, it's all about your own standard, it's all about accusing others of not being as good as you, or it's all about excusing you, listen, excusing you from having to really love people, from having to really turn to Christ with a humble heart, from having to really confess your sin, and really give and sacrifice for the needs of others. The things that Jesus says He changes in us. If your heart's far from those things, it's just lip service. 
And so Jesus unmasks their unbelief in verse 5. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Look, if David was innocent in what he did, then how innocent do you think I am in what I'm doing? I'm the Messiah. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath and I control its, its purpose and I control the heart that follows it. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What a statement. I am Lord of the heart. And I made those rules and those laws to set you apart. And you have turned them into this meticulous little highly regulated burdensome thing that you're not even, that you use as an excuse not to deal with the heart. You put it on other people. So Luke writes, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching there, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so they might have reason to accuse him. And he knows what they're thinking. So here's his provoking another debate. Come up here, come forward. He got up and came forward. Jesus said to him, he said to them in the crowd, and this is, this is provocation. This is setting up a conflict. This is the debate. He's poking them in the eye with his lordship. I ask you, and I can't imagine that he didn't point his finger to the religious leaders standing there ready to pounce. I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Here's a man with a withered hand, gentlemen. A withered hand. Don't you? you pass by him and he looks to you as his spiritual leader. He looks to you. You give him nothing. You don't comfort him in his, in his need for answers. Why did God give me this disease? Why do I have to be crippled like... You don't give him any compassion, any word from God, any trust in God, any pointing to the sovereignty of God. You didn't do any of that. You just say, hey, leave us alone. We're in our Holy Sabbath moment. We don't work on the Sabbath. We rest. Is it lawful to have a heart of compassion and mercy for people rather than your little rules and regulations that, you, that make you feel righteous? And you leave people harmed and without help? To save a life or to destroy it? Oh man, he knew he was putting it to them. And after looking around at them all, I don't know how long that moment was, but... This is, this is a silent moment. And he's staring at them. Not even going to wait for their answer. He said to him, stretch out your hand. And as he did so, a hand came out before everyone's eyes restored. The man came up with the withered hand. And he said, stretch it out toward me. And as he stretched it out toward Jesus, it was completely restored. Shock! But more important than the power displayed was the reason it was displayed. God wants us to have mercy to save lives, not destroy them. He wants us to love, not to hate. He wants us to seek forgiveness, not be proud and cover our sin. He wants us to forgive and not hold people in contempt and judge them. He wants us to be like Him, a God of mercy and compassion. And so, they themselves got the point. They were filled with rage. It's a word that means they were maddened. They went out of their mind with rage. Why? Why be so angry at a man who just got helped? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus had the compassion they didn't have. He had the answers they didn't have. He had the power they didn't have. He had the heart they didn't have. And they could not shut him up as he unmasked their hypocrisy. They couldn't shut him up. And so they were maddened with anger and they completely sequestered themselves in this little enraged group and they began to discuss together what they might do to him. Matthew's Gospel says they sought to kill him, to put him to death. 
They want Rome to carry out the capital punishment since it was against the law for the Jews to actually do it unless they could prove blasphemy against Israel or against Jerusalem. And they knew this guy was way too powerful. But they were discussing that. How are we going to do this? How are we going to get Rome to put, put him to death? How are we going to get this done? This guy's got to go. I don't care about his power. I don't care about the withered hand healed. I don't care about any of that. He has exposed us as phonies. One last text before we close. Look at Matthew 23. I'll leave you with this. Matthew 23. You remember I had read through verse 13. Verse 13, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You don't enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you'll receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? It was form over substance. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears by both the altar and by everything on it. Look, if you swear at all in the temple, you're going to be held accountable for what's in your heart. All of you are going to be obligated. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits on the throne. Verse 23, look at this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He's not talking about works. He's talking about the heart behind the works. Lots of people do justice and mercy and compassion and philanthropy, but their heart is not in it. He says, look, you shouldn't neglect the, the wonderful social constructs that make life wonderful. He was telling the Pharisees, yeah, yeah, you, you should be faithful to those things, but you should not neglect the heart behind them where you truly are for someone's help and mercy and compassion and faithfulness. You blind guides, verse 24, who strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also Outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Same reason the Israel of old killed the prophets. Same reason. Exposed. If you're here today and you are here in this service because you think it makes you acceptable to God, you need Jesus Christ to change your heart. You can't keep some law. You'll never be saved by keeping some meticulous religious standard. What the Bible says is true. You must obey the commands of God. The only way for you to obey it is to be covered by the righteousness of Christ and His forgiveness at the cross so that the Spirit of Christ can change your heart. You can have a circumcision of the heart and you can actually love God's law by the power of the Spirit and be completely acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's forgiveness. And if you are already a believer, but you have a tendency to drift back into using the Word of God to make yourself look better on the outside, but you don't deal with the inside, you've got you to confess that. 
Or maybe you accuse other people of unrighteousness because you kind of have that moralistic, maybe even uh, tighter legalistic sense where, oh, if you go do those things that I don't do, you're less spiritual than me. Look, Romans 14 says that anything that isn't explicit in terms of a command from God, there are all kinds of preferential issues and love should prevail between us. You believe one day is important over another, and they don't believe that, it's okay. Love should prevail. Let each be convinced in his own mind, Paul said. If you have a tendency to believe you're more righteous by the things you do, but you're not bringing your heart humbly before God in contrition and confession and obedience from the heart, then you could be accused of hypocrisy. And you don't want any shred of hypocrisy in your life. You want to take your heart before God and say, Lord, whatever the outside looks like, I want the inside to be changed so that the outside becomes clean like the inside. Jesus is Lord of the law. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And He's Lord of His people. And He empowers us to obey. And in our obedience from the heart, We're not more spiritual than someone else. We're just being transformed into Christ's likeness by His power and glory. So He gets all the credit. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, thank You for the way that the Lord in those earthly encounters teaches us to deal with the heart. and Such a tendency for us to Ignore the cleanness and purity of the heart and dress up the outside. Lord, that's so easy for us to do. Even as believers, we come to church and we put on that phony smile when we're not confessing our sin. And we give that phony greeting when we are holding bitterness against people. Lord, crush us for such hypocrisy. We know better in Christ. So help us to be servants from the heart whose lips of praise rise from a heart of humility. Lord, if there's a, a hypocrite here who's come to a service in religious pretense who thinks they can bring their good works, I pray they will have seen that what you said to the Pharisees that none of that stuff is substantive. It's all just hypocrisy. Traditions of men puffing yourself up with outward righteousness. Lord, help people to deal with their heart before you and seek forgiveness and believe in you and you alone for their forgiveness and acceptability. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.